Welcome film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, and let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Hello, listeners far and wide, and welcome to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I gave a lot of thought as to the best way to introduce today's topic, and I think the best way to do that is frame it in the context that oftentimes a good thing comes out of something terrible that happened or something terrible that had been happening for way too long. Uh, About five years ago, uh, with the Me Too movement, it really empowered actors, primarily women, to speak out about behavior that they had experienced on set. Um, Sex and intimacy have been part of film since the beginning, uh, but as we know now, um, over the last 50 years especially, um, actors have been either coerced, lied to, manipulated, or even just flat out abused, um, all in the name of making art or making movies. Beginning in 2017, a shift began and a new crew position started to become more a necessity, uh, even a requirement on set, and that position is the intimacy coordinator. I am by no means an expert on this, but we are fortunate to have an award-winning professional certified intimacy coordinator with us today. I am pleased to welcome Nicole Perry. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Nicole, this is a fascinating topic, and I think our listeners are really going to learn a lot today, probably have their eyes or, or their ears opened up to things that they may have never considered or thought about when either watching or making a film. But uh, before we get too deep into that, I want to hear about your journey, um, you know, how you found your calling as an intimacy coordinator and really where it all started for you. Yeah, well, for me, I actually started in performance as a dancer and musician. My undergrad work is is in dance and music, so I have a degree in each of those. And I was working in theater and doing a lot of choreography for theater and performing in theater and... I was at a resident company in Philadelphia, which means that the people like live there. They are the company. So instead of a theater company being like, hey, we're going to do this play. Let's hold auditions to find these roles. They look at the people that they have in their company and then choose the right place for those people to do. So it was the same group of people over the course of two years. And we did some some little independent film projects and things like that, too. And I moved to Florida about 10 years ago to keep working in theater. And as I was working in theater, I was also doing a lot of youth theater and children's theater. And even in middle school and high school productions, they would have students kiss hug, be in bed together, depending on on the show and the, the content. And no one really addressed it. It was never directed in kind of the same ways that some of the other things were. And I thought nothing of it because that's just how it was in my experience. And then I was actually teaching high school and middle school theater and dance. And I was choreographing the high school musical. I wasn't directing, another person was directing it. And one of the students in the one of the lead roles came to me and said, I'm really nervous because we have to kiss. And this person had never had a kiss before. And so they were, they were very concerned that they would do it wrong. And so there's social pressure around that in high school, like there is for anything and everything. But also they had this fear that they were going to like ruin the show if they did this moment wrong. And I was like, isn't this 
so strange that we don't have ways to tell people to do this when we tell them when to sit, when to stand, how to speak, how to say this or that. We choreograph fight sequences, we choreograph dance sequences. And here is this really important moment to the story that we're like, go for it, just figure it out. And I thought, gosh, that's really weird. So I started like looking up how to choreograph these things and there wasn't very much. This was 2016. 17. There was not a lot of information, but I found two organizations, one called Theatrical Intimacy Education and one called Intimacy Directors International that were doing some trainings. And so TIE actually had like a one day workshop at UM. And so I went to that and I was like, this is awesome because I'm coming from a dance background, a choreography background, just the idea of talking through movement. I was like, I can do this. It's just a different kind of movement and just really click with me and a need that I saw with the students that I had. And then I went to Intimacy Directors International, had a three-day workshop uh, in St. Petersburg. And so I went there to that and they got a lot more into the sort of the theory of the work. Not only is this work choreography, but it is an analysis of power dynamics and a protection of actors against abuse of power. And they also happen to mention in this workshop, like actually intimate scenes with minors are probably illegal. You should probably look at that in your state laws and see how specific it is about what it says, which is really interesting. And I now have like a whole spreadsheet of that to keep track of. Uh, and I was like, oh, I guess we're just not gonna do this anymore. So I was just learning so much and seeing such a need in working with young people and knowing that in South Florida, where I am, that there's no, there was no one doing this work already. So I knew that there was a need in general um, to have this work. So I started really working in theater and I started working professionally as an intimacy director. And we use the term intimacy director for whenever it is a live performance. So theater, dance, opera have intimacy directors. I started doing that in 2019 um, is when I started doing that professionally for theater pro um, projects in South Florida. And then when everything shut down in pandemic, we actually didn't have theater, but we did still have film in Florida because Florida later in 2020 started <laughs> stopped having lots of rules. And so lots of independent projects would come to Florida to do their filming because they didn't have to adhere to some of the requirements um, that New York or LA or even Atlanta were having at this at the same time. So an independent project was coming at the end of 2020 and was looking for an intimacy coordinator. So I reached out to one of the people who had taught me at IDI and said, I'd like to apply for this. I think I'm the most qualified person here, but I've never really done film. What do you think? And she was like, you should totally do it. You're going to learn a lot. And so I did. <laughs> I worked on that film. And that was a, a short film called Arena um, that has won several awards, actually. And from there, I was like, oh, it's really, it's the same work. The work is the work. Uh, the paperwork is different. The teams are different, but the work is still the work. And it's still the same heart of communicating between actors and directors, choreographing movement and creating art. You mentioned a couple of things that, that jumped out, uh, especially tying it back to dance. Probably the most intimate thing you can do without being actually intimate. It comes very close um, to it. And you mentioned, you know, minors in that, not to get us too far, but like I've seen come across 12, 13, 14 year olds doing like dance with the stars type of stuff. And this shouldn't be happening. Yeah, there's a big discussion in the dance world, particularly the competition dance world about the over sexualization of children and like what movement is appropriate, what costumes are appropriate and who gets to make those choices. I actually uh, work for an organization 
organization called the Dance Education Equity Association, where we work with dance studios and dance conventions on power, consent, anti-othering and anti-abuse so that these organizations can also do better because there is a real need in the dance world. And I think because it is so intimate and it's so body oriented, I think in, in film, we know that like the body is the the instrument, for lack of a better word, of the actor. But there's also a lot of other stuff. There's words and then there's all the props and sets and lights and other people around. But with dance, it's really just the dancer and their body with a costume and occasionally a prop with the dancer and their other body. And that's really all that there is. Like it's bodies in communication. And so intimacy becomes the norm. And so instead of talking about it, we take it for granted. Yeah. And it's interesting. And I'm sure like you alluded to when I was acting in, in high school and all that and would have kissing scenes, no thought went into it. It was just you kiss. And then when you said that, and as you said, you don't think about it at the time, but then when you learn about it, you're like, duh, how could this like not have been better handled? You know, watch closely. Yeah. Especially in education educational settings. We're teaching people how to read a script. What does it mean when the script says this? We teach them what a stage direction is versus what dialogue is and all of this stuff. Like it's a teaching moment. And then we never teach them how to have boundaries, communicate boundaries, how to take care of their scene partners. And that becomes the thing that I would always say to students when we were backstage before they would go on stage. I would just say, take care of each other out there. And like that's that's what we should be doing. We're taking care of each other. And uh, talking about minors, talking about intimacy coordinator, um, in the news recently, there's the story about the uh, 1964 Romeo and Juliet, where the director flat out lied, you could even say abused, the two young performers on that. Is that, do you think, I, I don't want to go so far as call it a watershed moment. Do you think, like I said, sometimes good things come from something bad happening. Do you think that will move the needle at all to really finally, you know, start putting an end to that kind of behavior? Yeah, I think it's actually causing a lot of new conversations. You know, intimacy coordinators, the first credited intimacy coordinator was in 2018 at HBO, so Alicia Rodas. And it's become in the last now almost five years, a thing that people are starting to recognize more. Um, but I think it's still recognized as this like almost police role, <laughs> which I'm always like, I'm not the sex police. That's not my job. I want everything to be as sexy as it can possibly be that everyone feels really confident in doing. <laughs> because that's actually what makes it sexy when people feel confident about it. But we haven't really looked at minors and what that means. And I know there are a lot of conversations that colleagues and I have been having about that. And also just this idea of like taking for grantedness of nudity in film, of sex in film. And like, how do we really make those scenes? And how do we make those scenes ethically and responsibly and in ways that people feel feel confident about them in the moment and also confident about them after. And I'm hopeful that this conversation goes beyond like, oh, an intimacy coordinator wouldn't would have just stopped that and it wouldn't have happened to here are all the ways an intimacy coordinator could have helped that process so that we still get a great scene that doesn't exploit people and that we're diving a little more into process of it because it was, this is something I read in the article yesterday that Adelaide Winthrop, who's an intimacy coordinator in the UK, wrote for The Guardian. It's like an op-ed piece about this, you know, like saying, oh, it was a different time and like, oh, it was Europe. I mean, like those are kind of excuses to cover things. But I think that also sets it up as almost like a case study to be like, if this was now, what could we do? What would be the process that they would then make 
this ethical, safe, and still have a great artistic product because we can look at it and say it was a different time. It was Europe. That, that's always kind of the go-to excuse. Oh, it was a different time. Yes. And uh, you also mentioned choreograph and the difference, difference between film and theater and dance. In film, you have a little bit more flexibility to manipulate the vision of what they're seeing. Whereas in live theater, it's they get one shot of what, what the audience sees, um, what you get. So that must be... That's was, probably what, the most interesting difference in working artistically is when I'm working in theater, I tend to go big picture, big image. And I do try to, like, they laugh at me during tech rehearsals usually because I will run around and try to sit in like every seat in the house to be like, what does this person see? And does it look good to them? But with film, it gets so detailed and so specific. And we can really choreograph like fingers and breath and be able to see that. But sometimes we're looking at the hands together or the hands on someone's shoulders. And that means that their bodies are actually like sitting side by side in sweats. And we're just looking at the hands and the shoulders because that's all that we see. So I think that's been the most interesting thing is going from like big picture to what is this picture and being able to translate all of those and create all of those. And uh, is, I guess the right way to say, is there a threshold? So a kiss between two adults. I'll take it even further. Let's say Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz, who are married, are in a movie together. And, you know, they don't have a full out love scene, but they have a scene where they kiss. Should that still have an intimacy coordinator? Or is that where I've also heard the term or I've seen the term intimacy choreographer and you use intimacy director. Can you talk a little bit about what the differences are? So an intimacy choreographer is kind of both like someone who's creating the movement of the intimate scenes. An intimacy director works in live media. So theater, opera, dance, an intimacy coordinator works in recorded media, film, television. Sometimes we're both, especially now the theater does some streaming stuff. (laughs) Sometimes we have to be able to do both things. Um, And a choreographer is actually the term that I prefer because of my movement background and because I have so many movement degrees and certifications and things. I prefer to be the choreographer, um, but not to neglect those other those other parts of it. SAG has guidelines for that. And SAG's guidelines are simulated sex, nudity, and then hyperexposure. And hyperexposure is a really interesting term because no one knows what it means, uh, which also leaves it really open and available available to each project to decide what it means because there are some actors that like if we were, they were doing a law and order episode and they're the body in the morgue they're going to be in a state of undress for a long time well they do many takes of these several conversations that happen in the morgue right so they are in this state of undress for a long time so they may want an intimacy coordinator there to just make sure they're always covered that they get a blanket in between takes something like that Hyperexposure can also mean a lot of vulnerability, exposed in a vulnerable way. So this could be a scene of intense grief or something traumatic. Maybe it is like a flashback scene to some kind of physical altercation between characters or something. Siblings at at a graveside. Also scenes of childbirth. They are not intimate in the ways that we think about them being intimate. And they often are not nude in the way that we think of nudity. Like we know that they're down there pulling a baby out, but like we don't think of it as nudity because we're not thinking of it sexually. So there is definitely a a difference in between these scenes of 
like hyper exposure and these scenes of nudity. Because if you're doing a childbirth scene, if the camera is going to be down there, it's a prosthetic. It's not someone's actual parts usually because we want to be able to pull the baby out of it and no one's doing that for real. <laughs> so, but that's still somebody's very close to you and someone is treating this body, this prosthetic body like a real body. So having that choreographed and making sure that both actors are clear on how does this actually work and it might require some different research from the intimacy coordinator than than a scene of like simulated sex would. So hyperexposure is a really interesting one. I tend to define it uh, as anytime an actor is in a state of undress that they didn't come to work in. Most of us come to work totally covered up, like full, full clothes. We don't come in our underwear. So, and, or any times that an actor or a character is in a state of extreme vulnerability. And that's kind of my definition of it, but because it's not really defined, places can, can change it and use it. So those three categories of simulated sex, nudity, and hyperexposure are kind of the guidelines from SAG, but an actor can always feel free to ask for an intimacy coordinator if they want one. A director can always bring one on on the project. I always find it interesting that there isn't one for kisses because those are ones that like when they're bad on camera, they're they're real bad. <laughs> they don't look good. But also in terms of a physiological standpoint, there's absolutely nothing different biologically to your body about a kiss on on camera and a kiss with your partner in real life. It is the same body parts, it's the same nerve endings, it's the same movement. And so in terms of of physiological reactions, your body really doesn't know the difference. Your body's getting the same information through your soft tissues and your nerve endings. And so having an intimacy coordinator for a kiss can also be an extra measure of like, how does this look good? But also, wow, I think that felt nice. And they're like, no, it's, it's work. And I actually set one this week for a theater production and they were laughing because I really choreograph it. We're like, okay, we're going to come in with closed mouths, but when we pull back, we have open mouths. So the audience believes that we have tongues involved. And I always say, we never have tongues, even on camera, unless the director is like, I need to see the tongue. And sometimes they need to see the tongue. But if we can't see it, we can't choreograph it. And if I can't choreograph it, then I, you don't need to do it, right? So we have like go in with a closed mouth, come back with an open mouth. And I had them, taller partner had to make circles with their nose against the bridge of the other person's nose. And then the shorter partner had to make circles with their chin coming up to it. And so they're going through the choreography going, okay, close mouth, open mouth, close mouth, circle, circle, circle. And it becomes this very choreographed thing. And the director that we were working with is actually someone who I'd worked with previously as an actor. And he was like, yeah, it just becomes choreography and you don't feel anything because your brain is going one, two, three, four, five. And so it does, it helps short circuit that biological impulse, which can be a way that people not even like get into trouble, but just get uncomfortable and are like, do I like that person? My body got flushed or hot or what? And maybe I like them. Maybe I didn't know I like them. Or experiencing arousal or an erection because your body is getting the same 
same feedback and then not knowing what to do with that when if I was there I'd be like push-ups go do push-ups go go do push-ups move your blood somewhere else <laughs> we would just we would take care of it right they, because it's a normal it's a normal bodily reaction that actually means your body is functioning well with the the information that's getting so I think that kisses should have them but they often do not so many interesting things you just said uh one of it you mentioned law and order and I think law and order is the Kevin Bacon of film and TV that everything can be tied back to something on episode in law and order and and you also mentioned childbirth and uh I want to come back to that uh but first we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back back. Today I am joined by intimacy coordinator Nicole Perry. We talked a lot about what an intimacy coordinator is. I want to get into what exactly an intimacy coordinator does, like how they actually work. And I think a good jumping off point uh, is something you mentioned uh, that I think a lot of people didn't think about, um, a childbirth scene. And uh, recently in House of the Dragon, there was a pretty graphic childbirth scene during that. And now that I think about it, I think I'd read about them having an intimacy coordinator what would you know that that be like for the intimacy coordinator on set for that? Yeah, so with episodic, it's a little bit different than with a, a film because the intimacy coordinator tends to be like a known quantity um, that they're working on several several of the episodes, not just you know they might not just show up for one day, which sometimes happens with film. So there tends to be a little more of a relationship in that. Um, but in general, the process, whatever the project is, starts with someone in production going, oh, we need an intimacy coordinator for this, that there's something in the script that has flagged that, or an actor has said, I won't do this project without one, or I really want one for this project or whatever. And so then they reach out. And the first thing um, that I ask for, at least, is the script. And depending on NDAs and relationships and things like that, they may send me just the scene. They may send me the whole script. If they send me just the scene, I'm like, I really need the whole script because I need to know how this fits in this story. I need to know, you know, where where this child came from. How does this parent feel about this child? Like, where, how did we get to this pregnancy and this childbirth? I, I, because I'm not just there to be the sex police and make sure no one does things they shouldn't do at work. I am there to help tell a story. And so I want to make sure that any movement that I provide, any choreography, that I provide helps support the story that the actor and director want to tell. So it usually starts with the script and then a conversation with the director about what is the director's vision for this scene. Sometimes they have storyboards and images that they send. Sometimes they will say like, oh, do you remember this scene from this movie or TV show? I want it to be just like that or I want it to be nothing like that. And we'll have a conversation about that. And I like to ask like, what do you need to tell this scene? Because it's very different what we want and what we need sometimes. Like, what do you need to tell the scene? But also what's the story behind this scene? Again, hearing that story from them, because we can tell a story a million different ways. There's a million different ways to have sex. There are lots of different ways to give birth to children. What is the story that we want to tell with this scene? So then when I talk to the actors and they say, oh, I really don't want this part of my body to be on camera, or I don't want anyone touching this part of my body, or I only want implied nudity. I definitely don't. I want to make sure that I have pasties on or something. We have ways to do that and still uphold the story that 
that we want to tell because there's so many different ways to do it. So script, conversation with director, conversation with actors. If there is nudity involved, there are nudity writers that go in contracts. And if it's a SAG uh, film, a SAG project, SAG has a 48-hour window on those writers that the writers have to be provided for the actor and then signed 48 hours before filming. And those writers will detail what is happening. They, we are going to see glutes. We are going to see implied nudity in a scene of simulated sex so that the actor has time to review it and make sure that it's accurate to what they agreed to do. And then it's a signed document 48 hours before we film so that we can't get in the room and have somebody go, what if they just took their shirt off here? Nope, we have legal paperwork that says we can't just take our shirts off unless you know you want to wait, then we'll do another We'll do another take of that scene. So it's a protection mechanism and just in terms of communication and clarity so that no one's surprised by what they have to do. And I personally like to encourage all productions to have that practice. Like, yes, it's a SAG practice, but everyone can do it. It's a best available practice that everybody could do on every project. It's just say, if we're doing a scene of sex or nudity, we have to have paperwork signed 48 hours before. And from there, we go into rehearsal. And sometimes I get to rehearse ahead of time. Sometimes I get to rehearse the day of. Sometimes we don't really rehearse at all. I always like to rehearse and I encourage directors to rehearse because you will get your shot faster if we have rehearsed. If you have found a way to get me into that space with those actors, even for just 30 minutes before you shoot, you will get consistent takes much more quickly than if we are trying to learn the choreography and shoot it at the same time. I'm sure the intimacy coordinator community is still relatively small and a lot of stories get shared. Um, from what you've heard from others, because where you are, you know, in Florida, not as huge a film industry and TV industry, have longtime producers and directors been receptive to having intimacy coordinators or more? I would think a bigger challenge may be when a producer hires an intimacy coordinator and, you know, the director, like you said, you know, the, oh no, the sex police are here. How has that been and, and is it improving? I feel like it's really going both ways. I do, because I am in Florida where there is not a lot of film, particularly SAG, um, I do feel like everyone that I work with, for the most part, wants to work with me, which is lovely. And it makes going to work really great um, that I don't have a lot of pushback. But actually, that first, very first instance of projects that I worked on, uh, I got the sense that I was there at the request of a producer and not, or an actor and not the director. Not that anyone was, was mean. It was just a sense that I had on that. Um, but I have heard from colleagues in like LA and Atlanta that you know there are some folks that are incredibly supportive. Uh, I happen to know that at Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta, the intimacy coordinator has their own parking spot with a sign and everything. So it's a it's an investment that Tyler Perry Studios has has made and really committed to. And I don't know that that means like everyone there is super excited about it, but the organization has said this is a commitment that we have. Um, but I also hear from folks that there are some directors and producers that thought it was a fad and so they kind of they did it for the first couple years being like and then this will go away and we can get back to doing things our way and as it has become more ingrained and entrenched in practice that there is there's now starting to be some new pushback because people were just hoping it would go away i was gonna ask that like they initially the people think oh it's just a fad it It'll go away, you know, we'll appease such and such. 
group for now, but then it'll be back to business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there's, there's some of that. And I, one of my, my favorite memories of my own work uh, is just being with Billy Corbin. And when he was talking about God forbid, which we uh, created for Hulu, it's a documentary. And I was the intimacy coordinator for the recreations on that. And Billy had said this to me privately, which was lovely, but then Billy said it publicly in front of other people, which was extra validating. Um, He's like working with Nicole is great because it's one less thing that I have to worry about and do as the director. I know that Nicole is going to make sure the actors are happy, that we have everything we need, that the scene looks good, and we can come in and shoot it. And that lets my director brain worry about all this other stuff that I can come in and we can tweak some things and we can set up shots and we can move around and then it's done because I hired Nicole to do her job. And yes, that's how it works great is when the directors can see the skills that the intimacy coordinator is bringing in and it's like, great, go do this thing. And I trust you to do the thing and we'll have a great product when we're done. And I think another thing that you said that that's a positive indicator, you know, Tyler Perry Studios, you know, full-time intimacy coordinator, you know, parking spot, which that's when you know you really made it. You know, when you think of Tyler or when I think of Tyler Perry movies, intimacy and sex don't aren't the first things that come to mind. Like it, it's not like others that I would think. So the fact that it's not a major part of it yet, it's an important part of the crew says a lot. Yeah, they really committed. And it's great when you have those projects that are like, no, this person's going to make it better. They're going to make it better because they're going to enable communication and transparency. They're going to bring movement clarity to the scene. Like whenever they're here, stuff is better because they're they're here. So independent films everywhere, uh, independent films, low budget, no budget films. And a lot of times they'll have an intimate scene, some independent films that just throw it in there for the sake of throwing in something gratuitous. And I'm sure a lot of them don't budget for it, don't even think they need an intimacy coordinator. What would you say to independent producers, independent directors to help change their mind and help them really understand yeah, uh, it is a job. So I do I do expect to get paid and I recommend to all intimacy coordinators that they expect to get paid for everything that they do because actually when one of us works for free, that just undercuts all of us and then everybody expects everyone to work for free and that's not how it should be. We should get paid for the work that we've trained. Like, as I've gone through a certification program and a certification program is multiple thousands of dollars and multiple hundreds of hours of training. Um, so it's an investment of my life that I've made to this career and that should be honored compensatorily, if that's a word. Um, and I tr- I try really hard to work with projects on budgets. Like I do not charge an independent film what I charge a SAG feature. That would be silliness. And I try to negotiate things from there. Like we can do this number. Oh, we don't have that number. Okay, can we do this number? And if the actors agree to it, we get some behind the scenes photos that I can put on my website. Can we do this other number and you put out a press release about how your project has an intimacy coordinator, which frankly, every project that has one should do because it's good press. It's makes it's still new enough that everybody's interested in hearing about what the intimacy coordinator is doing on something or finding out what an intimacy coordinator is and how they work. And it makes audiences feel good when they see the film, that they know that no one's being exploited or abused. Even if the scene is a scene of that, they feel confident that it's a story. And so they can enter into that experience of viewing your film with some ease and confidence that they're not participating in someone's abuse. So I think that's always a great thing to do. So I try to really work with folks on that, but it should be 
It should be a paid position. It should be a, a position that you anticipate that the person is there as part of the storytelling and part of the creative team. And that it's not just a safety feature. It can be. There are times where I have literally like been the babysitter in the corner of the room and just like, here's your mouthwash for your kissing scene. And there are times where when that's the job and that's fair. And sometimes that's all they need because the director feels super confident directing the scene or the actors feel really confident in what they're doing. And all I have to do is hand out mouthwash and make sure that no one goes beyond what the writer says they can go beyond. It's not my favorite day at work. My favorite day at work is when I get to be part of the storytelling process and particularly for independent films or like student films that tend not to budget for these positions. I'm bringing with me a lot of expertise from some bigger projects and a lot of different projects that I can also aid your storytelling, like use me, I'm a resource. That's another good point. And it goes to a lot of you know industries and, and professionals where it's, uh, yeah, not only are you paying me for the four hours of work, you're also paying me for the 10 years experience that I bring to it. You mentioned you'll bring your mouthwash, something simple like that. And, and full disclosure to our listeners, Nicole and I have worked together. And I remember, you know, when she was giving her brief to that, I, I was the first AD on the thing. And, you know, she talked about bringing mouthwash and I'm just like, oh, of course, that makes so much sense. But I also know in the past, directors or even actors, if they want one of the recipients to be like disgusted by the guy kissing, it's like, oh, go have some anchovies or onions. Um, before the scene. Have you encountered that? And is there a, a happy medium for those kind of approaches? I haven't, but I think there probably is because it does go back to technique and having a craft and having choreography. Like we can create those moments and we do in acting all the time. You know, we create moments of fear or disgust when people like, unless of course someone is purposefully abusing or exploiting someone, you know, they're create we're creating scenes of scary movies, horror movies. People are not actually scared because they've read the script and they know their co-worker that's over there in the scary costume or whatever the special effects are only special effects and they're just pretending to be scared to a green screen so we know that this can be done and for some very strange reason uh, sex and kissing tends to be the really the only time that we try to like make actors do it quote unquote for real and I think that's very strange that we again and it comes down to like not having a technique or or a practice for it it's funny we, we We've brought this up a couple of times on, on past episodes. Uh during the shooting of, of Marathon Man with Lawrence Olivier Aintman, Dustin Hoffman, a method actor, his character was supposed to have been up for three days. So he was up for three days and all that. And then when Sir Lawrence saw him, he said, you know, my dear boy, have you just tried acting? So it's it's the same thing. You, you know, you don't, have you tried acting, you know, being disgusted when, when he kisses you? Um, really, I mean, things, it sounds like they're moving in a fairly positive direction, but what are, you mentioned one, you know, those thinking that's a fad, it's going to move on. Um, I know some big name actors have spoken out saying that, you know, having intimacy choreographers, it ruins the spontaneity of it. Um, what are some of the challenges that you think are still being faced to really make intimacy coordinators as important as armorers on set and prop masters? You know, it's really just a essential part of a crew. Just knowing what an intimacy coordinator does is still, there's still some education to be done. Even though this position has existed for five years, like it really, HBO was 
the first network to commit to an intimacy coordinator. They're the first one to have one and commit to have one on every show. And so it started off in a very, in a small niche of the industry and it's spreading. But I think just, just talking about like simulated sex, nudity and hyperexposure and all the different things that might fall into that category of hyperexposure or the fact that like again, kissing uses your exact same body parts and biological processes regardless of where you are. Just having those kinds of conversations with people, they start to go, oh, so that's why you have an intimacy coordinator and bring it back to technique instead of just go for it. Oh, that's why you have one. Because I think there is still a very large conception that we are the sex police, that we're there to make sure that there's no sex. And I'm like, lots of sex are it's totally fine. Even if it's gratuitous and supports the story in no way, it's totally fine if that's what you want in your film. As long as everybody feels really confident about it and it's repeatable for 20 takes and you get the same consistent shot, like why would you not want that? So I think education still around the role is something. Compensation is something. And because we all work in very different markets, like I have a very different rate in South Florida, even for a SAG feature, than my colleagues in Atlanta do. Because I also have to be aware of my colleagues in Miami. And even though I am one of the only intimacy coordinators here, I also have to have my rate be comparable to the lighting folks and the costume folks and all of that so that I'm not undercutting them or asking for something exorbitant um, that makes them look like they're undercutting everybody in their industry. So it's a real balance in terms of rate and then just expecting to be paid regardless of the project that compensation is, <laughs> is a requirement, uh, can be, can be another, another barrier to it. I think there's also this idea that the role came out of the Me Too movement and that it is reactionary. And I think that's part of what fuels this idea of it being a fad is that like, oh, it came out of the Me Too movement. And as soon as like her Harvey Weinstein goes to jail, right? Then we'll all feel better about it. And we won't need it anymore. But actually intimacy as a profession for staged intimacy, the first person to coin the term intimacy choreography uh, was Tonya Cena in 2006 in her master's thesis at VCU. And Tonya was there as a movement pedagogy student. And she really was there as a fight director. And she, because she was one of the only women in the program, as you might imagine, she kept being asked to, will you look at this kiss? Looks weird. Can you fix it? Or like, this is a scene of sexual violence. So we want Tonya on it instead of, you know, this other dude, right? So she kept getting this kind of work and she realized at that time that there was not a system for that. And because she was coming from this fight direction background where there is a system of pedagogy, there are exercises and drills and best practices for doing these things. And she realized there wasn't that available. So she did her master's thesis on what she called intimacy choreography. And Tonya is one of the founders of Intimacy Directors International, which is where I did uh, all of my training, most of my training. And I am lucky enough to call her friend and mentor. So this work really started far before the Me Too movement, but really was then supported by the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement helped to bring forward why this role was necessary. And Tonya with Alicia Rodas and Siobhan Richardson, who's in Toronto, actually started Intimacy Directors International because the three of them were all women who were fight directors. And Alicia was also working as a stunt coordinator and were constantly being called to do this work. And so Tonya went on to be the first credited Intimacy director 
director ever on a project, which was uh, the Bacchus at Stratford Shakespeare Festival. And Alicia went on to be the first credited intimacy coordinator at HBO. So these women were really bolstered by the Me Too movement, but the work that they were doing dates far back before that. Again, looking back, put it into context, I think in Hollywood, you know, whether it was, you know, the open secret or the cliche, I think the kind of like casting couch backroom stories had always existed. And unfortunately, I hate to use the term, a no-name actress that never made it doesn't move the needle. But once Harvey Weinstein, and then once people started learning that it wasn't just in the back rooms, it was happening to A-listers on set in successful movies that people have all watched. Um, now, like I said, it's a horrible thing, but it looks like something good is coming out of it, and it's still moving forward. And I think another important thing to talk about is uh, is the power structure, and that's a, a very important topic, and I think you know something I definitely want to dig into more. So we are going to take another quick break, but before that, we would like to thank two of our partners that help make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who's been a mainstay of the film industry since 1968, providing equipment, support, and training. And ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment. This is Howard Brand. You're listening to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. And we are back. Welcome to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Brand, joined today by Intimacy Coordinator, Nicole Perry. Nicole, before the break, we uh, we started to broach the topic of um, the power structure, um, whether it's in Hollywood, whether it's an independent film. I'm a veteran, uh, <laughs> so I know the military very well. And probably after the military, film sets have to be one of the most hierarchical structures that exist. You know who's on top and, and you know who's on the bottom. Within those structures, actors, especially for a long time, I felt they just had to listen to what the directors do. And even lower, you know, if you're a grip or on the crew, you just shut up and do your job. Is that changing? I'm not sure if it's changing um, because Western society as a whole is built on hierarchical patriarchal structures. Uh, so that we just kind of perpetuate them over and over. And it's, it's really interesting for me to hear you say like military and then film being hierarchical because I often use that same like evaluation to talk about dance um, because <laughs> there's this Deborah Jowett, who's a dance historian, writes about uh, the Mariinsky Ballet being created to basically mirror back to what was the Tsar's Russia with all of the nobles, all of the rank and structure and traditions of the Tsar's Russia. So they could go out and live their life in rank and structure and tradition and then come in and watch on the stage, that being mirrored back to them um, through all of these stories. And the ballet is incredibly hierarchical and patriarchal as well. So I don't know that it's changing because I think it would require a deep examination of the system systems that we are a part of and the structures that we uphold in every aspect of our life uh, that many of us are not ready to do. What I think is changing is the level of communication around these things and the idea that while power dynamics absolutely exist in the systems and structures we're a part of, that transparency, accountability, and communication mean that those powers can be mitigated or that having power 
doesn't mean that you are abusing power and that there are ways to have conversations with each other to really collaborate. And I actually wrote my master's thesis, I have an MFA, on this idea of working consent, which is the idea that we never really get to consent in theater or film or dance or anything because of the power dynamics that exist. There's never an equity. There's never equality in relationships. It's always this imbalance. But what we can do is have this ongoing process that tries to mitigate it as much as possible, which means that we have to name the power dynamics that exist. Like I know, actor, that you don't want to tell me no because I'm the director, but I am telling you that you have the right to say no, that I expect you to say no if this is not the way that you are going to perform most confidently, because that's really important to me, not just getting the scene this way, but that you are doing whatever scene we're doing well, and that I'm not going to use it against you the next time you come in to an audition with me. And I'm not going to talk about this with other directors or other producers that you are the curse hard to work with, right? And, the, and I think that that those kinds of conversations are ways to mitigate power dynamics uh, so that they're not affecting us to the level that not talking about them does. When we just don't talk about it, then people are free to make up whatever story they want about whatever it is. And very often, like most directors that I know don't go around talking about like, oh, this actor wouldn't do that. And they're so hard to work with because they do not have time. Like, even if they felt that was true, nobody has time. Nobody has time to go have coffee with other directors and talk about other actors. So it's really not happening, but actors are free to make up those stories if they want to because it's not being addressed. So to have a director say, you can say no, I want you to say no, it's more important for me to have this scene be confident and well acted than for me to have the scene exactly as it adheres to my vision, which I always think is a little bit silly. Like my friend Matt Stabile, who is a theater director that I work with often, is always like, why would I hire other creatives if I thought I had the right answer, then I would just do my thing by myself. But I've hired a lighting designer and an intimacy director and because I want to hear what they bring to the process. So I think it's always very interesting that we have this idea of like the director's vision is this like sacred object that cannot be violated. Then what are these other people here for who are equally skilled in the things that they're doing? Because the intimacy coordinator is also going to have ideas and the actors are going to have ideas. And what if we thought of the vision of the scene as something we could create together? And the only way we can do that is if we actually talk to each other. Do a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, but I'm sure there are directors. And I guess I'll compare back to like corporate world or whatever, you know, the managers say, oh, we have an open door policy. Have a problem with something, come talk to about it. They say the right things, but they don't really mean it. Yes, there is definitely a lot of that. And I recommend when I'm teaching, I teach a lot of workshops on power and consent, particularly for theater companies, but then also a lot of theater and dance programs in university settings. And every organization that I work with, I ask them about their chain of communication or their resolution pathway. And that is if something goes wrong, how do people talk about what has gone wrong? Who do they go to? With every production that I'm on, I want to know what that is. And I want to make sure that my name is part of that process so that you know, they can go to the first AD or they can come to me if they're concerned about what they're hearing from the director. If they have a problem with me, that they can go to the first AD. So that there's always alternatives too, and that there are alternatives sort of horizontally, like what's an equal power structure. When actors are SAG, they always have their SAG union rep that's someone that they can talk to. What if they're not SAG? Then who do they go to? And there should be a way to have those conversations. And there should be a way to have them kind of horizontally where nothing is escalated. But then there should also be like, where do we go? 
go if things aren't getting resolved or if things aren't resolved in a manner that are able to we're able to work in like we thought it was resolved and then it ended up being a disaster you know, so i always encourage organizations to have that to have it as part of contracts posted on the wall and you know when we do have sag or in theater like an equity production those structures are kind of already made for us but there are other ways to do that on independent films and in school settings and there's also sag has like a hotline but it's not an easily available resource so i always like to make sure people what people know what that number is and that i have it if they need it and the same thing with equity equity has an anonymous reporting app they don't go around advertising that they have one you have to know somebody who will tell you that it exists so i think having resources for people to communicate is really important because then you know like oh these people are saying it and there's a plan and then once they start following the plan then what happens you know, is there a resolution? Is there accountability or does it get shut down? And I've experienced both things where we've had instances of harm and people have followed through and it's been resolved and we've been able to go back to work with everyone feeling like probably a little bit weird because no, I don't think any of us really enter creative work purposefully to be harmful to other people. We enter creative work to make art. You know, sometimes we make mistakes and then we have to have accountability for that and move on. But I've also had instances where we've started following what an organization said was their pathway to resolution or their chain of communication, and then it's been shut down because people at the top didn't want to hear it. And I ended up like leaving that project because I can't be a part of an organization that has accountability in words only and not in action. That's a value for me. You know, you talked about SAG actor versus, versus non-SAG actor. Let's take that even further. The mantra, you know, if you see something, say something. And everyone, if anyone on a set sees something, they should say something. But $15 an hour, grip, see something. In reality, what's the likelihood they're going to speak? You know, unless it's somebody that has serious intestinal fortitude to do that, there's self-preservation. Yeah, I, I don't want to get fired. Yeah, and I think that's part of something that an intimate coordinator on set can also provide is this idea of someone who is part of the process um, but is available to everyone uh, that like oh I don't have to go to the director that seems too too scary or too much job jeopardy if I do that um, but here's someone that's here and is paid to care about people so maybe I can say it to them and the intimacy coordinator's job is like yes we're there for safety of the actors but we're also there for the safety of everybody else because the crew has to see these scenes, however many takes we're going to do of it. And the crew wants to know that those actors are safe and confident because the crew wants to feel like they're doing a good ethical job. Again, I don't think anybody <laughs> comes to this work with the purpose of exploiting people or abusing people. And so I think it's really good for grips to know there's an intimacy coordinator on this and what I'm seeing is acting and the actors are safe and that they're taken care of. And that also they have the opportunity to consent to what they're going to see. No one should be surprised by that. You know, the statistics on trauma, the experiences of trauma are just bananas to me because right now it's one in every like three and a half women and one in every six men by the time they're 18 has experienced some kind of trauma and we become adults that doesn't slow down. So everybody's coming with their own trauma and baggage and issues and activation points. And so the crew should also know like, hey, we're filming a scene of sexual assault today and we have an intimacy coordinator on this scene so that they can feel safe coming 
going to work or that if that's not going to let them feel safe, that they can say, actually, we need to get coverage for me on this day that we're doing this because I am not going to be the best person to have on set because I'm not going to be able to do my job well because I need to take care of myself and people should have the opportunities to take care of themselves regardless of their position. On a set, who is really ultimately responsible? I, I mean, obviously the intimacy coordinator is responsible, but the director is captain of the ship. The producers own the ship, but really the first AD generally is the one responsible for safety as it comes out. And the first AD is the link between what's happening on set back to you know the production company. So really, who's the intimacy coordinator's backup? Like who should always be the one definitely on, on their side? Besides, I mean, obviously everyone, but uh, you know, we're talking reality. Yeah. I have to say that in my past work, like first ADs have been my go-to and my sort of side-by-side person. And I've been really lucky in the work that I've done to ha- always have um, first ADs that have been incredibly supportive of the work, incredibly communicative, um, even if they haven't always understood what the role is and that maybe it's their first time working with one, genuinely interested and interested in facilitating the process to like see where it goes, see what it brings. Um, so I think first ADs for me have been really, really helpful, um, really great go-tos uh, in terms of talking things through and in terms of, hey, we have this issue I can address it. You can address it. How do we want to? How do we want to move forward with this? I'd be curious uh, to know if, like, the DGA training program in LA and the one in New York, if they've started to make that part a part of the curriculum. I know most of the curriculum is is working on sets on it, but I think there's there's like a, a once a month like classroom part of it. So that's very interesting. And I think the other important thing talk about for everyone is uh, what are some of the red flags? What are things that people should be aware of, be on the lookout for, what should kind of turn the radar on? Are we talking actors as they're like coming into a role? Are we talking crew as they're on set? A little bit of both? I would say both. Okay. I would say definitely the actors should be aware But as a crew, you know, you're just showing up for work one day and you may not even know something is off. I think for actors, just reading the script and kind of looking for those three categories of like simulated sex nudity and or hyperexposure, like where are those showing up in the script? And knowing that if those are in there, if you're on a SAG production, there absolutely should be an, again, SAG only recommends it. They're not going to make anybody do anything. Um, But if a SAG actor asks for an intimacy coordinator, they're probably going to get one. So I think knowing that you can ask for one, particularly in those three categories, but really any, because hyperexposure is a mushy definition, um, really anything that they feel like it would be helpful for, but all actors have the right to ask for support in their creative process. And if an intimacy coordinator is going to support that work by being there, you should totally ask for one. And then also gauging how that's met. Sometimes that's met with, I don't even know what that is, which is still five years in a fair and valid statement, particularly in independent films to be like, I what? Uh, and then there's some more education to do around that. And that's actually how I ended up working on my first student film at University of Miami, where I teach in the dance program, but they didn't even know that I was there. And that I also worked in film until a student film, one of the actors was like, I'd really like an intimacy coordinator for that scene. And the student was like, I don't know what that is, but I'll find you one because you're the the actor that I want. And I think that's important too, for directors and producers to think about is like, you are not telling a story of simply simulated sex or nudity. You're telling this whole story. So hopefully you have cast the actor that helps tell that whole story. And so this 
instance of nudity or simulated sex is just this tiny little bit of what of what you are asking for them. And so if the actor doesn't want to do that one thing, this is the other one of the other tenets of like the working consent idea that I wrote my thesis on is that they should be enthusiastic about the work. The actor is there to do the whole role, not just that one part. And if they want to work around that one part, support some boundaries on one part, negotiate what this one part is looking at, why not? Because they're the person you want for the whole role, the whole story. The story's going to be better with this actor in the whole role than trying to find somebody who's willing to do this one part of it. And I think sometimes productions can get hung up on this idea of like, oh, we have to see nipple. We have to have this sex act when... That's often not the story that we're telling. So what do we really what do we really want to see? So I think for actors, just having that gauge of your own boundaries and what those are and feeling free to ask for an intimacy coordinator. And then how is it met? And if it's met with harassment or heckling, um, is that a place that you really want to work? Is that a place that you feel safe? Is that a place that's aligned with your values? And if they're giving you pushback on this one thing, I would anticipate pushback in other places as well. Or if they're not caring for you on this one thing, I would anticipate other instances of a lack of care. So having just sort of a, a framework for yourself as an actor of what are your hard, what are your hard no's? What are your boundaries that you are not going to cross? And if a production can't meet me in those, then it really doesn't matter how much they're going to pay me or it does matter how much they're going to pay me. I, I'll do the scene of nudity, but there absolutely 1000% of the time should be a nudity bump. If you're going to be doing nudity, you should get paid extra for that. You know, because especially now, like things end up on the internet forever. It is not like it is just on a piece of celluloid for occasional viewing. It is on the internet for constant access for all time. And for crew, like crew doesn't always, very often does not have the whole script. They don't really know what scene we're shooting every day. So as an intimacy coordinator, I always make sure if we're doing a closed set scene, so anytime we have nudity or simulated sex, uh, I close the set, which means essential personnel only. And every production has a different idea of what essential personnel is. But usually it's the director, cinematographer, first AD, sometimes second. Hair and makeup sometimes, depending on how like active the scene is, sometimes they're outside the door and they come back in. You know, sometimes we need the focus puller in, sometimes they're out, sometimes we need a boom, sometimes we implant a mic. You know, we all have a different need of essential personnel, but we have that idea of closed set. So I make sure that a production has my closed set memo the week that we're shooting, that like this day is going to be closed set so that they can put them in those preliminary call sheets and all of that so that crew can start seeing it and and maybe ask some questions about why do we have a closed set that day? Am I essential personnel? Am I going to need to be there? I'm going to need to be there in the scene of sexual violence. I don't know if I want to be there. Maybe I can trade with this other person. And then having uh, the safety meeting in the morning, often I don't get to give the safety meeting. The first does it entirely just to continue to be the like one the one voice of, of the project. Um, but we'll talk about ahead of time if that's the case. Hey, we're having a closed set. These are the things that we're going to see and like, making sure that the crew feel prepared as well. And if I'm giving the safety meeting, same thing. Hey, we're having a closed set, essential personnel for our production. It's this person, this person, and these eight other people. If you're not essential personnel, go have a Coke and a smoke. And if you, <laughs> if you are, let's make sure we feel good coming into this room because this is the scene of the story that we're telling. I always try to talk about that way too. Like this is the work that we're here to do today. Capture this scene of sexual violence that is not at all sexually violent, 
But if that's not a safe place for you to be, I don't want that either. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, the idea of close sets. And, and we talked a little bit about the break, about how um, there's been instances where the actress, um, you know, in a scene is just the fact of having you another woman in the room. Unfortunately, I'm sure in the past there have been, and still today, unscrupulous directors who try to appease their actresses with, oh, don't worry, it'll be a close set. But that close set also means that they're in there alone and unprotected. So I think that's another important thing to notice that um, even for an actress, I would say, even if there is not an intimacy coordinator there, even, you know, if there's another female on the crew, her quote position may not seem essential. It's important to, to have an ally in that room with you. Yeah, I think is and actors of like all identities, because intimacy coordination is very much a female field. It tends to be women. But that doesn't mean that we are always the right person for a job because there are tons of scenes of queer intimacy. And so maybe the right person to have there is a gay man. You know, Maybe this scene of intimacy actually, because it's between people of color, has a cultural component to it that I don't understand as a white woman right. and you know, that we should have some more variation. So that's something we talk about in intimacy coordination training a lot. It's like, you are not the right person for every job. Here in Florida, I'm one of the only intimacy coordinators. So if you're going to work with an intimacy coordinator in Florida, chances are pretty darn good that you're going to work with me. I'm a white lady. And that means that like either you have to work with me, a white lady, even if you're seen as queer intimacy or intimacy between people of color that has a cultural component that I may not understand, or you may have to pay extra to fly somebody in or have someone on Zoom that is totally functional, but is maybe not ideal for your situation or for the actors. And I think it's really important for intimacy coordinators also to evaluate whether they're the right person for the job, but also to be really transparent about like, I need to do more research on this thing before I come into the room, or I need to just say to the actors, hey, I don't want to ask you to do something that is a stereotype. And if I cross a line, I want you to tell me. I invite that conversation on what that is. Like I've done a lot of cultural competency research because I think that's really important for me as a white woman to do. I've done a lot of queer sex research because that's very important for me as a straight woman to do. Um, but that doesn't mean that I know everything. And I try to just be really transparent when I'm in those situations about like, there's shit I don't know. And I want to know if what I'm doing is harmful or just stereotypical or just not the best story and you have better ideas. And I've found, at least in the projects that I've been on, that when I enter with that, because I've actually done a lot of queer um, projects, that when I enter with that, uh, people tend to be very open and honest and receptive and not like, what? why is this person trying to tell me what to do when they have no idea? I think the best takeaway, at least that I get from that, and I think that actors uh, should take away from that is you absolutely have the right to ask questions. You absolutely have the right to speak up. And, you know, you mentioned everything on the internet. Do you, if you're not sure, do some research. If you're not sure, reach out to someone. And uh, we're going to talk about some of those resources. Uh, we're going to talk about where our listeners can follow you and get in touch with you. But first, we're going to take one more quick break and we'll be back to conclude this wonderful and just fascinating episode. To our listeners, if you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and then head over to our online store at paradoxicalfilms.com forward slash shop, where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear, including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. We'll be right back.
And welcome back. I'm Howard Brand. We are talking today with Nicole Perry. Nicole, we've talked about a lot. Or we've listened a lot. You've talked about a lot. This has been amazing. It has been fascinating. I know our uh, our listeners, I hope, have, have learned a lot as well. But now let, let's finally talk about you. What are what are some of the projects that you're currently working on? Well, uh, after I leave here today, I'm actually headed to Theater Lab, uh, which is a regional theater in South Florida that only does new work, which is really exciting and fun. I love working on new plays. I think that's also part of what I like about film and TV is often that the stories are new or new takes on stories. So I really like working on that instead. I won't say in like instead of Shakespeare's because uh, it's always fun too, but I really love telling new stories. So I am headed there for designer run because they open um, on the 28th of January. So if you're in South Florida, Theater Lab is a great, great place to go. Uh, and I'm also working at New World School of the Arts right now as a guest artist as their intimacy director for their spring productions. It's the first time that New World, uh, which in South Florida is kind of like the fame school. It's where you go for performing arts training. It's an audition only high school and they also have a college program. So I'm in the college program right now as a guest artist as the intimacy director for their spring productions. Um, so actually my spring is really full of theater. Um, then I'm at the, the Maltz and I'm at Miami New Drama and I'm back at Theater Lab. So I'm doing a ton of theater work this spring. So if you're in South Florida, you can find theater work. With film right now, you can see God Forbid on Hulu, which is a documentary uh, by Billy Corbin and uh, Hyperobject. And it is a great, terrible story <laughs> of, of abuse of power, really, and how abuse of power uh, can mess up people's whole lives. Uh, if you do have religious trauma, I give you a caution on it because it is about uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., who is the head of Liberty University. But I worked on the recreations on that. I have a feature coming out on Hulu and another feature coming out on Netflix, um, but those don't have release dates yet, so I cannot talk about them. But you can watch my social media, uh, and I will post it as soon as that is available. There is a short film that's called Truth of a Thousand Nights that was created by Chris Molina, uh, who's a filmmaker in Miami. And that film won several awards and is available online, um, but I'm actually working, working, I'm presenting a workshop, those are the words, at the Miami Film Festival in March about what intimacy coordination is and how filmmakers can work with intimacy coordinators. And Chris's film is going to be the example for that. And that was such a great film. I really, one of my favorite things that I've worked on, I think it's really fantastic. It's a short, very short film about hookup culture, but particularly queer hookup culture. So it is one of those projects that I went into being like, hmm, this is not aligned with my demographic and just able to be really communicative with the actors and the directors about vision and process and sex acts and how this gets portrayed well. So I'm so honored. I think that that film has done so well and that it gets a good reception and that Chris uh, and I continue to have a good relationship and working relationship that we can like make workshop off of this thing because it's maybe not one that white straight lady should have <laughs> should have been the intimacy coordinator on but I think it speaks to you know when you enter the process with integrity and with communication what can be done and I have to say that God forbid is also just one of my favorite things to have worked on like the story is really important to me as someone who grew up in a very evangelical household um, and then as I have grown I've been like wow, that really doesn't seem like
like how the world works. Um, so it was very important to me personally, but also artistically, because it's the first documentary I worked on as an intimacy coordinator. And I got to create such artistic shots with Billy because in recreations, you're using actors, not the real people. So we cannot ever show their whole selves. And so setting up some of these shots was just an incredible process. And then seeing the final product and being like, oh, that's that's so cool how all of that work came out. Like I am both personally and artistically very proud of God forbid. Yeah, it was it was great to watch. Really, I mean, all all of Billy's work is is pretty amazing. Uh, you mentioned your socials yes. where our listeners can follow you. Intimacy Choreo FL and on TikTok and Instagram is the best way to find me. So intimacy spelled like you think it is. Choreo is C-H-O-R-E-O and then FL, the abbreviation for Florida. So I am on TikTok and Instagram as that. My website is my name, which is Nicole Perry. So NicolePerry.org is my website. And on my website, once you enter, there's an intimacy page. And on that page is some articles and you'll see some actors talking about working with me at some press releases and things like that. And then there's a click through at the top that's like, what are your frequently asked questions about intimacy coordination or intimacy directors? And it takes you to another page where I really break down my process of like, this is what an intimacy coordinator can bring in pre-production. This is what an intimacy coordinator does day of. This is what an intimacy coordinator can do uh, in the editing process as I rarely get asked to do any editing work or comment on edits, but I could be really helpful there to just make sure like everything lines up with the writers or still telling the story that we want to tell. So people could take much more advantage of the work um, if they use me for a whole process than just for just for a day. So if you're interested in more of like, how does that work or what does that look like? That page can be really helpful. Great. And you mentioned at the beginning, you know, the training that you went through for our listeners. If uh, somebody wants to pursue, become an intimacy coordinator or, or at least look how to do that. Where's a good place for them to start? Yeah, there are several organizations. I'm going to speak mainly to the U.S. since that's where I am. Uh, there are organizations in the U.K. and in Australia, um, Germany and Israel and India actually have like their own organization. So many countries or areas kind of have their own organization. And it is important that wherever you are, you find the right organization. Spain also has their own, uh, that you find the right organization because they are going to be the people that know the laws that you need to adhere to and the unions that are applicable to your situations. Whereas if you train in the U.S. and you are not in the U.S., some of those things are not going to happen for you. Um, some of the foundation work might be great, but the like hands-on and in-depth on-set kind of conversations would actually be different. So I just want to put out that caveat before I talk more about it. In the U.S., there are several organizations that do training, and many of them have training online. It's particularly since uh, COVID times, they've transitioned to at least offering some of their stuff online, some of their stuff in person. So I am affiliated with Intimacy Directors and Coordinators, IDC. I am certified as both an Intimacy Director and Intimacy Coordinator through them. And I also teach for them both their foundations of intimacy courses and in their continuing education. So I will say that I am biased because I am attached to the 
business organization. Uh, but intimacy directors and coordinators, their website is IDC Professionals, has free workshops that are like, what is an intimacy director, intimacy coordinator? We can sign up for one of these 90-minute things and just come learn more. So if the podcast has intrigued you and you want to check them out sort of as an organization and see if they're right for you, that might be a great place to start. And then we have level one and level two foundations of intimacy courses, which are really for anyone and everyone in the, in the entertainment field. We have had people in foundations that want to be intimacy directors and coordinators, but we also have what we call like consent forward artists, where I'm a director and I don't want to be an intimacy coordinator, but I want to know how to work with one well, or I want to know how to be consent forward, how to take care of actors better, even on scenes where we might not need an intimacy coordinator, or we're working on this indie project that really can't afford an intimacy coordinator, but I want to put in my own practices. Or I'm an actor and I want to be able to advocate for myself better. So we recommend that anyone and everyone take the Foundations 1 and 2 courses, and we offer scholarships uh, for people as well. And then there is a level three where you have to choose if I want to be an intimacy director and work in live performance, or I want to be an intimacy coordinator and work in film and TV. And you have to choose which one of those you want to continue your pathway in and you have to apply. There is a whole very, not going to lie to you, it's large. It's a large application process. <laughs> and then those things are in person after that. So one and two are online. Level three is in person. After you finish level three, you go into a mentorship period in level four, and then you apply for certification. IDC and IPA, which is Intimacy Professionals Association, are the two organizations that offer certification. You have done this high level training, we can certify that you've completed all of the requirements. There is no requirement for certification. SAG does not require that any intimacy coordinator on a SAG set be certified. Um, independent films obviously do not. So there's not a requirement that you have certification. So there are some other organizations like Theatrical Intimacy Education that provide a lot of education resources but not a quote-unquote certification program. So theatrical intimacy education also offers a lot of stuff online. They have some overview courses on intimacy direction and intimacy coordination. They have some on like working in academia and working with minors. So those things are available through them. And I am not quite as familiar with them, but I have actually taken um, their in-person workshops and several of their online workshops because I believe in learning and learning from a lot of people. So I think that they have a great program with lots of resources. I just can't speak to it in the same way that I can speak to others. And what SAG is looking for in intimacy coordinators, and they have published on their website, is that they have training. Not that they're certified, but that they have training. So you could put on your resume or your CV, you know, I did Foundations One with IDC, and I did Intro to Intimacy Coordination, and uh, whatever the on-camera workshop is called at TIE, and put all of those on there so that you're able to display your training. And that's what SAG wants to see, is that you have done training in what does it mean to do intimacy for the entertainment industry? 
But then SAG also requires, and IDC requires this as part of their certification program, that you show competency in intersectional areas so that you're doing work in cultural competency, particularly if you're a white person, that you're doing work in advocacy and communication, that you are doing some queer studies work, particularly if you are a straight person, that you're doing trauma-informed practices work. So whether that means that you can list a bunch of books that you're reading or some other online courses that you're taking or you took a program at your you know, local community college on nonviolent communication and that you're able to put all of those things in there. And IDC counts those in your level three program. You have to prove that you're doing all this work and then SAG also needs to see that. So training and intimacy coordination is both training in the actual act of creating intimate choreography and navigation of the media that you're in, but then it's also what are all of the intersectional, for lack of a better word, hot topics that people need to know to be good at this job. Where does the level three, the in-person training, where does that take place? Those currently for IDC are all in New York. They're in New York. There is plans to spread those to LA and probably Atlanta um, at some point in the future, but right now they're in New York simply because that's where most of our staff lives and that but that's also a great hub for the industry that we can you know get people connected to other people for both theater and for film um, when we're in New York and like we said before it's where law and order is filmed and everything always goes back to law and order <laughs> it's also true <laughs> what does your future look like that is such an interesting question especially being in Florida <laughs> uh, you know there was there was some hope in November that perhaps we might change governors and be able to reinstate some film incentives because the last time film incentives were in place in the state of Florida statewide was under Charlie Crist in his previous incarnation as a Republican, which is a different story. Uh, but <laughs> we don't have film incentives statewide right now in Florida. We have some really great incentives in both Miami and Broward counties, um, also in whatever county Tampa is in. Uh, they have some really great countywide incentives, but it's really hard for a county to compete with a whole state, uh, like the state of Georgia. So we are not in an advantageous place for filmmaking in Florida, which can be rough in terms of getting those big credits or getting noticed or getting the name. Uh, but I, as I said before, like working in Florida also means that the people I work with want to work with me um, because they're mainly not required to have an intimacy coordinator. So I am hopeful that that continues and that as Miami still is a great destination for shoots. Uh, last year, I worked on an episode of First Wives Club that was coming to shoot a beach wedding. You know, and they came to Miami to shoot just that one episode. So they have their regular intimacy coordinator in Atlanta, but I got to be on the Miami episode. And the Netflix feature that's coming out sometime this year, same thing. They shot the whole thing except for like three days in Atlanta, but the days that they were here, I got to work on on those scenes. So I'm hopeful that there will be more of that coming, um, particularly as, as Broward County is increasing their film incentives and they're building those new sound stages. Like there's some exciting stuff happening, but I don't know. <laughs> 
I was going to ask if uh, this round of sound stages are coming, we're building, um, that supposedly happens every five to 10 years. Do you think that's going to happen this time? I'm very hopeful that it will, um, mainly because the, I cannot remember his name right now, um, but the person from LA has actually like moved here. <laughs> they live here now. So I feel encouraged that things are shifting that way, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. And, you know, I'm working in theater. I worked at Florida Grand Opera last season uh, for one of their productions. Um, Sarah Lozoff, who is from Miami, now lives in LA, um, but still comes back frequently. And Renee Reddings-Jones, who's in New York. The three of us started an organization called Intimacy, Direction, and Dance, where we are advocating really hard for more dance companies to bring intimacy direction into space. Because as we talked about before, it's an incredibly intimate act already. And then when you add on perhaps levels of nudity or intimate acts, that it can be even more helpful. And Sarah's worked um, with a couple of ballet companies, but we have a couple of workshops coming up this spring with different um, dance programs around the country. We have one at um, North Carolina State coming up um, pretty, pretty quickly with their dance program. Nicole, I've been blown away by everything we talked about. Um, you may not think of yourself this way. I'm going to call you a trailblazer, um, especially in this area. I think you are, like I said, you've opened the door for a lot of people. I've really taken, I think, what's a, a still a foreign concept. And really, as I say, as I used to say, you know, Broke it down Marine style, you know, broke it down, broke it down Marine Corps style to the fact that it, it's easily understandable. It's easily digestible. This is where you can find out information. This is why you should have intimacy coordinators for actors. These are your rights. This is what you should be looking for. And it, it's been great. I cannot thank you enough. Uh, for being here. My pleasure. We are happy to welcome you back on the podcast anytime you want. I love talking about this stuff. Anytime. <laughs> and uh, we wish you the best of luck. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan, along with associate producer Victor Ferreira and executive producer Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website at www www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you can send any comments, suggestions, or feedback for future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to join us for our next episode where we will continue to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast. This is the Cinema Pathway podcast. We'll see you next time. Lights out.